It's the 25th of August, 2015, and this is episode 241. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Today, I'm pleased to present you with another perspective on the Bitcoin block size and Bitcoin XT issue. This one comes to us from BitcoinTalk.org and a legendary poster over there named Death and Taxes. The post is called Permanently Keeping the One Megabyte Anti-Spam Restriction is a Great Idea, and it primarily talks about how the network works now and what scaling actually will look like. I found this to be a very informative read, and so I'm pleased to share it with you now. Permanently keeping the one megabyte anti-spam restriction is a good idea, if you're a bank. Those favoring a permanent one megabyte cap whilst asserting that Bitcoin can still be a financial backbone of sorts don't know how right they are. The problem isn't a limit in general, but that one megabyte provides so little transaction capacity that, under any meaningful adoption scenario, it will push all individual users off the blockchain to rely on trusted third parties. One megabyte is insufficient for end-to-end direct user access, but it is sufficient for a robust interbank settlement network. If the cap is not raised to some higher limit, allowing a larger number of users to maintain direct access, then individuals will be priced out of the blockchain. When that happens, Bitcoin becomes yet another network with no direct, peer-to-peer access, like Fedwire, Swift, and other private, closed transfer networks. There is no realistic scenario where a network capped permanently at one megabyte can have meaningful adoption while still maintaining direct access to the blockchain by individuals. To be clear, by direct access, I mean both parties transacting directly on the blockchain without relying on an intermediary or trusted third party. Quote, Bitcoin, a purely peer-to-peer version of electronic cash, would allow online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a financial institution, end quote. Satoshi Nakamoto, Bitcoin White Paper. Finding a balance. If the transaction capacity of a peer-to-peer network is very low, then the resource requirements of running a full node will also be low, but the cost of transactions will be higher. A network that keeps computing requirements low, but which has priced direct access to the network out of the hands of individuals, doesn't help decentralization. Likewise, if the transaction capacity of a network is very high, then the cost of transactions will be low, but the resource requirements for running a full node will be high. A network that has sufficient transaction capacity for every possible transaction, but which requires resources that put operation of a full node beyond the capabilities of individuals, that also doesn't help decentralization. There is no perfect transaction rate. It's always going to be a compromise between two different centralization risks. Lowering the risk of transaction centralization raises the risk of node centralization, and the reverse is also true. A robust network means minimizing overall risk, not by minimizing one risk at the expense of the other. This means that neither extreme is optimal. What level of transaction capacity, in terms of block size, provides the optimal balance will be saved for future discussions. Having a discussion on how to change the network first requires an acceptance that the network needs to change. So let's start with why the network must change. Can we stop talking about a cup of coffee, please? If you've been following the discussion, you may have heard a claim such as, 
every $5 coffee doesn't need to be on the blockchain, so there's no need to raise the limit. The implied meaning is that while the cost of permanently keeping the limit will exclude trivial transactions, you'll still have direct access to the blockchain for everything else. This is misleading as the 1 megabyte restriction is so restrictive that larger, more meaningful transactions will eventually become uneconomical as well. I don't really care if my morning coffee is paid for using a centralized service. Centralization and trusted third parties aren't always bad. Have you ever given or received a gift card? Can't get more centralized than that. If I put $100 of Bitcoin under the control of a third party, say in an e-wallet or a Bitcoin debit card service, the risk and scope of that centralization is limited and manageable. As long as direct access to the network remains economical, I can securely store and transfer my wealth using on-chain transactions and make centralized solutions where the risk is low such as day-to-day -day purchases. On the other hand, if the imbalance between transaction demand and capacity makes individual transactions uneconomical, I'll lose direct access altogether, and that risk is more severe and the consequences more significant. Sidechains, payment channels, and cross-chain atomic transactions are decentralized systems that can move some of the transaction volume off of the primary chain. In essence, like centralized solutions, they can act as a multiplier, allowing a higher number of total transactions than the number of direct on-chain transactions. It's important to realize, though, that they still rely on the primary chain having sufficient transaction capacity, or they aren't trustless either. As an example, a payment channel could take hundreds or even thousands of off-chain transactions, but it requires periodic on-chain transactions to create, adjust, and take down those payment channels. If the individual user loses direct access to the primary chain, they also lose trust-free solutions like payment channels. If direct access becomes prohibitively expensive, then the only solution that provides sufficient scale is using trusted third parties. When demand significantly exceeds capacity, it increases the utility and value of centralized solutions. So if the transaction demand exceeds capacity by a magnitude or more, it'll lead to direct users being replaced by trusted third parties acting as aggregators. There are a lot of disadvantages to centralized services, but they are more efficient, and if the artificial limit is kept, it'll play right into the advantages of those centralized services. A third party can facilitate instant off-chain transactions. If demand outstrips the very limited supply, it'll force transactions off-chain using trusted third parties, which I'll call processors. Today, these processors would include online wallet providers, exchanges, merchant payment service providers, and services where the user maintains a balance under the control of the merchant, such as a poker room or a casino. In time, even traditional financial companies and banks could become processors. The one thing they all have in common is that the customers of these services do not have direct control over their private keys and do not directly make transactions on the network themselves. The processor has control over the private keys, keeps the bitcoins in reserve, and maintains an internal ledger of user transactions and balances. Processors can trivially facilitate transactions between two customers on the same service. Since they control the private keys, they simply update the ledger balances of the two customers, and many of them are already doing this today. However, in this situation, transactions can still occur off-chain, even if they involve customers of different processors. The process isn't trustless, but risk can be managed. Two processors would aggregate all the transactions which occur between their customers, and then periodically settle the differences. When a payment from a customer of one processor is made to a customer of another processor, the sending processor notifies the receiving processor. 
Both processors update their internal ledgers. Over time, this will result in an accumulated balance by one processor to the other, which can be settled with a single on-chain transaction. The key thing here is that there's a one-to-many relationship between the transaction settlement that happens on blockchain and the underlying customer transactions that happen within the processor's individual pools. While the one megabyte limit does not provide sufficient capacity for a large number of direct user transactions, third-party processors can facilitate a very large number of off-chain transactions using a smaller number of on-chain settlements. Blocks of a finite size can support a nearly unlimited amount of off-chain transaction capacity, with the limitation that involves the use of trusted third parties. You can't compete with a bank. You might be considering the point that we've just made, but dismissing it because you still could submit a transaction to the network. The processors described above don't have the ability to close the network, but a network that you have technical access to, but which is uneconomical, is effectively no access at all. The current block size realistically limits capacity to no more than two to four transactions per second. Two transactions per second is roughly 64 million transactions per year. A finite number of transactions can't support an infinite number of direct users. Say at some point there are 10 million users and they wish to make two transactions per month each. That's 240 million transactions, but only 64 million would fit in the blocks. What happens to the excess? If third-party processors are attractive, the difference will be handled by them. When you consider a settlement network would allow these third-party processors to offer instant, no-risk transactions at significantly lower fees than on-chain transactions, the excess demand would of course be processed off-chain. If the network continues to grow, the profitability of these companies will grow, and that will lead to more third-party companies. Those settlement transactions allow more off-chain transactions, but at the same time they compete with direct user transactions for the limited on-chain capacity. In a settlement network, the upper limit on the number of settlements required grows exponentially with the number of trusted peers. Just 200 trusted peers, call them crypto banks, performing hourly settlements would fill the blocks, all the blocks, perpetually. There may be billions of Bitcoin transactions, but they would be nothing more than updates on centralized ledgers. The blockchain would just handle the settlement between each of the massive financial service providers. As these entities are collecting fees, and on-chain transactions are a necessity of doing business, they can and will pay far more than you to ensure timely inclusion in a block. When you as an individual have been reduced to a position where you must outbid a bank for space in the blockchain, then you have effectively lost access to that blockchain. You may be wondering how off-chain transactions could occur between different payment processors, say BitPay and Coinbase, for example. So let's talk about that. Imagine two large financial service providers where thousands of customers make payments to customers of the other entity. These may not be banks in the traditional sense, they can be any entity which acts as a third party to manage the bitcoins and transactions of a customer. Today, it could be major exchanges, payment processors, and e-wallet providers, but tomorrow it could include traditional financial service companies or even banks. For this example, let's call the two companies Chase and HSBC. Chase and HSBC can notify each other when one of their customers makes a payment to a customer of the other entity. Both would just update their internal ledgers and the payment would appear to occur instantly. Most importantly, none of them would require an on-chain transaction. It's just updating numbers in a ledger. If you are a Coinbase customer and pay another Coinbase customer, this happens today. 
We're only taking it a few steps further in handling cross-entity transactions. Now, the entities have no real cost to perform these payments. They're just sharing a few bytes of information with their counterparty and updating numbers in their databases. However, over time, the net amount of the thousands of transactions will result in one entity accumulating a balance owed to the other. This is why settlement networks require some level of trust. It requires trusted peers to extend mutual lines of credit to each other. The more they trust each other, the larger the lines of credit and the less frequently they need to settle. It's also why you would never be a peer on this network. The entities would enter into a legally binding agreement which sets up the conditions of the settlement. The amounts of funds the entities are risking is limited. The entities will limit the amount of credit they will extend and the terms are usually very short. These aren't long-term loans. In the traditional banking world, settlement might occur the next business day. The efficiency of the blockchain allows for lower capital requirements and lower risk by setting more frequently, even hourly, settlements. Imagine that this particular hour, HSBC customers make thousands of payments to Chase customers totaling 10,000 BTC, and Chase customers make thousands of payments to HSBC customers totaling 3,000 Bitcoin. In total transaction volume, that's worth 13,000 Bitcoin. As these payments occur, Chase and HSBC notify the other party. This allows both to keep their ledgers up to date. A customer making a payment would see their balances reduced instantly, and the customer receiving a payment would see their balance increased instantly. The net flows, however, are not balanced. Chase has increased their customer balances 10,000 BTC and only reduced their customer balances 3,000 BTC. On the books, both entities have a liability called customer deposits. They keep reserves, hopefully more than 100%, to cover these liabilities. However, Chase has seen its liability increase by 7,000 BTC, and HSBC has seen its liability decrease by the same amount. To reconcile this, HSBC will make a single on-chain transaction to Chase for 7,000 Bitcoin. This will increase Chase's reserves by 7,000 Bitcoin and decrease HSBC's reserves by 7,000 Bitcoin. And now everything is balanced again. Yes, it did require a limited amount of trust between settlement peers and a single on-chain transaction, but it facilitated thousands of off-chain transactions. As soon as the next cross-entity transaction happens, a balance is owed by one entity and the net amount owed will increase or decrease until the next settlement, which balances the books again, and the cycle continues in perpetuity. Now, when demand for transactions exceeds what is possible, who do you think can pay more in fees? You or the bank? If transaction demand exceeds capacity, then some transactions simply won't make it into a block. Those paying the highest fees will be the ones who retain access to the blockchain, and those unable or unwilling will be excluded. It is delusional to think that it will be the banks that suffer in a situation like this. The reported 7 transactions per second capacity does not exist. There is a myth that without raising the limit, the network could handle up to 7 transactions per second, or 7 TPS. It can't. The limit is 1 megabyte per block. The actual transaction capacity depends on the average transaction size, and realistically that provides no more than 2 to 4 transactions per second. To achieve 7 transactions per second using 1 block of 1 megabyte every 600 seconds means that the average transaction size must be only 240 bytes. If you have a Bitcoin wallet handy, take a look at your last dozen transactions, and if you don't have a wallet handy, use a website to look up the transactions in the most recent block. How many of the transactions were under 240 bytes? Not very many. I'm going to say the majority of your transactions were probably between 300 and 700 bytes. 
Can you form a 240-byte transaction? Sure, as long as you only have a single input. A transaction input requires at least 147 bytes. So an average of 240 bytes per transaction is not possible unless the average number of inputs is less than two. While some transactions may have one input, on average they're going to have more. The total number of inputs in the blockchain will roughly equal the total number of outputs. As the number of blocks approaches infinity, the ratio of inputs to outputs in a well-functioning blockchain will approach one-to-one. -one. Since most outputs will eventually become inputs, it makes more sense to look at block capacity using a balanced transaction as a template for transaction size. A balanced transaction is one where the number of inputs equals the number of outputs. Single input, single output exceptions are both rare and have limited use. A two-input, two-output transaction is more standard using all compressed keys and P2PKH scripts. This is kind of the typical uh, use case and weighs in at 373 bytes. At 373 bytes per transaction and 1 megabyte per block, the network will not exceed 4.4 transactions per second. This is already 37% less than claim, but it's still unrealistic as it represents the smallest possible balanced transaction. Most transactions are going to be larger than 373 bytes due to the use of uncompressed keys, more complex scripts, and more inputs and outputs per transaction. Looking at the last million transactions in the blockchain, I found the average transaction side was 560 bytes. At 560 bytes per transaction and 1 megabyte per block, the network will not exceed 3 transactions per second. So we've already lost over half of this claimed 7 transactions per second capacity, but this is very likely to decrease further over time as transaction sizes creep higher. Multisig and other complex scripts are being used more and more frequently, and that trend will continue. A good estimate for the network throughput when limited to 1 megabyte blocks would be 2 to 4 transactions per second depending on how optimistic you want to be. Here's a direct comparison of the combined script sizes for some different types of transactions. The script pub key is encoded in a transaction output and the script sig is encoded in the transaction that spends that output. Since outputs eventually become inputs in new transactions, the combined size of the script key pub and the script sig represents the round-trip script cost of a single transaction. So a standard transaction, a P2PKH transaction, is 131 bytes per script round-tripped, and that's comprised of a 25-byte script pub key and 106-byte script sig. A 2 of 3 multisig, P2SH, is 253 bytes per script round-trip for a 22-byte script pub key plus a 231-byte script sig. For a 3 of 5 P2SH multisig, it's 383 bytes per script round trip, 22 bytes script pub key, plus a 361 bytes script sig. And then if you jump to something like a 15 of 15 multisig key, then you're talking about essentially a uh, 1,481 byte round trip uh, with a 22 byte script pub key plus a 1,459 byte script sig. Just how many transactions are possible per megabyte of block capacity? Here's the maximum capacity of the network at various average transaction sizes. Realistically, 2 to 4 transactions per second is all that is supported by 1 megabyte blocks, and the lower end of the range is far more likely than the higher. So if you're looking at something like a 2 in, 2 out, you know, just standard transaction, then that uh, can support up to 4.4 transactions per second. If you want to jump to something like a standard 2 of 3 uh, multi-sig transaction, 
then the network can only support 2.7 transactions per second at that rate, which is 616 bytes per transaction. This same metric also applies to larger blocks. Advocates of larger blocks will often overestimate the capacity of these. It's realistic to estimate getting 2 to 4 transactions per second per megabyte of block space regardless of the block size. If all blocks were 20 megabytes, that would provide a realistic throughput of 40 to 80 transactions per second, not 140 transactions per second. Still, 40 to 80 transactions per second would be sufficient for 100 million users making one or two transactions per month. One megabyte cannot support a sufficient number of direct users, even if transaction frequency is very low. One argument made by those favoring the cap is that Bitcoin doesn't need to be used as a transactional currency to be successful. Users could primarily acquire Bitcoin as a way to secure their store of value or savings, and continue to use other currencies for routine purchases. Bullion and other stores of value have a much lower velocity than transactional currencies. This means a block of the same size could support many more users. While the user of a non-transactional currency may not make dozens of transactions per day, meaningful access would at least require access on the order of dozens of transactions per person per year. If your savings or brokerage account restricted you to only one deposit per quarter and only one withdrawal per year, I don't think you would find that very acceptable. Future users of Bitcoin won't find it any more acceptable either if they're forced to transact this infrequently. Let's talk about the maximum number of users based on transaction frequency. We're assuming 1 megabyte blocks and 821 bytes per transaction. At this rate, you get a throughput of just a little bit over 2 transactions per second, or about 64 million transactions annually. If you had 8,000 direct users, then each user could make 8,760 transactions, or roughly they could use the Bitcoin network once per hour. With 178,000 users, each user would be restricted to one transaction per day. At 500,000 users, you'd get 128 transactions annually, or just about 2.4 times per week if you spread it out. At 1.2 million users, you could transact once per week, or 52 times per year. At 2.6 million users, you could transact twice per month or 24 times per year. At 5.3 million users, you're down to one a month that you can make a Bitcoin transaction. At 16 million users on the Bitcoin network, each user could make four transactions per year or one per quarter. At 64 million users, you could have one transaction per year as an individual. At 200 million, you're down to uh, a transaction every few years or 0.3 transactions per year. And if a billion users were to start using Bitcoin, then you're down to less than one transaction per decade per user, or 0.06 transactions per year. As you can see, even with an average transaction frequency of just once a week or once a month, the network can't support more than a token number of users. When someone advocates a permanent cap of one megabyte, what they're saying is, I think Bitcoin will be great if it's never used by more than a couple million users making less than one transaction per month. Such a system will never flourish as a store of value as it's eclipsed by alternatives which are more inclusive. To support even 100 million direct users making on average one transaction every two weeks would require throughput of 82 transactions per second and an average block size of 20 to 40 megabytes. One megabyte doesn't even keep up with existing non-retail payment networks. Going back to that coffee meme, the implied message is that one megabyte is fine for everything else. You know, substantial stuff like paying your mortgage, business deals, major capital expenditures, or paying a supplier for inventory. This just isn't the case, though. 
Do you know anyone who pays for coffee with a bank wire? The Fedwire service run by the U.S. Federal Reserve processes 150 million bank wires annually. The Fedwire service only operates in the U.S. Internationally, the largest clearinghouse is SWIFT, and it processes more than 5 billion transactions annually. The U.S. ACH network is even larger with 19 billion transactions annually, excluding converted checks. There are also about 2 billion international remittances annually, Western Union, MoneyGram, and other networks. A 1 megabyte restricted Bitcoin network couldn't even keep up with these transfer networks, even if you forget about retail sales entirely. The idea of keeping the 1 megabyte restriction, and that it only limits the utility of small payments, is simply incorrect. Here's what the Bitcoin block size would need to be to reach comparable network volume based on the average transaction size as we've talked about so far. To replace Fedwire's 150 million transactions annually with a small or 373 byte transaction size, we'd need 1.1 megabyte blocks. At a 550 byte size, we'd need 1.7 megabyte blocks. At an 833 byte size, we'd need 2.3 megabyte blocks. For remittances, you're talking about 2 billion transactions annually, so at the small 373 byte size for transaction, you'd be looking at 14.2 megabytes worth of blocks going every 10 minutes. At 560 bytes, you're up to 21.3 megabytes, and at 833 bytes, which is that uh, standard transaction using a 2 of 3 multisig, you're up to 31.7 megabyte blocks. To match SWIFT with their 5 billion transactions annually, you're talking about 35.5 megabyte blocks at the small size, 53.3 megabytes at the medium size, and 73.9 megabyte blocks at the multi-sig size. ACH, that's 19 billion transactions. So there you're looking at 134.8 megabytes at the small size, 202.4 megabytes at the medium size, and 301 megabytes at the 833 byte size. On a transaction fee basis, currently the cost of the network is roughly 300 million annually. The users of the network are collectively purchasing 300 million worth of security each year. If users paid 400 million on the network, we would be more secure, and if they paid 200 million on the network, we would be less secure. Today, the majority of this cost is paid indirectly or subsidized through the creation of new coins, but it's important to keep in mind the total unsubsidized security cost. At two transactions per second, the unsubsidized cost per transaction would be about $5. At 100 transactions per second, it's around $0.05. Cents. If Bitcoin was widely adopted, more users purchasing more coins should mean a higher exchange rate, and thus the value of potential attacks also rise. The future cost of the network will need to rise to ensure that attacks are not economical and non-economic attacks are prohibitively expensive relative to the benefit they give to the attacker. It may not raise linearly, but it will need to raise. If someday one Bitcoin is worth $10,000 and we're still only spending $300 million a year on security, we probably are going to have a problem. Now advocates of keeping the limit may argue that the majority of the network cost won't be paid by fees for many years, but the reality is that with a low maximum transaction rate, you can choose either much higher fees or much lower security. In conclusion, restricting the size of blocks to one megabyte permanently is great if you're a major financial services company. You could co-opt a very robust network act as a trusted intermediary, and force direct users off the chain and onto your centralized services. For the same reasons, it is a horrible idea if you even want to keep open the possibility that individuals will be able to participate in that network without using trusted third parties as an intermediary. 
Thanks for listening to episode 241 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by GetKeepKey.com, an easy, secure, Trezor-compatible hardware wallet coming soon. One of the things that's different about the KeepKey compared to other hardware wallets is that it only has one button, a confirm button that you hold down for a second or two to complete your transactions or other sensitive functions. The thing that's missing here is a cancel button. What happens if the information you're asked to verify when viewed on your KeepKey turns out to be incorrect and you only have that one confirm button? You have two options. Close the Chrome extension wallet simply by clicking away for it, or just unplug your device from the computer. Either way, when you reopen the wallet, you're back to where you started and ready to go. For more information or to have KeepKey notify you when the price is set and the product is ready to ship, visit getkeepkey.com. And today's magic word is taxes. That's T-A-X-E-S. Taxes. You've got until the 1st of September to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener awards. Content for today's episode was provided by Adam and Death in Taxes. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.